Good morning. I've not had the pleasure of meeting yet. My name is Brad. I have the privilege of being one of the elders here at Country Bible. And uh, before we uh, dive into scripture this morning, I wanted to make uh, a few announcements myself. Uh, hopefully, uh, help us prepare for what's next and also help you as uh, pray for church life or two churches' lives in the weeks to come. Uh, so, just so everyone knows, on August 20th, we'll be having our outdoor service here. If you're uh, not already, plan on bringing a chair that morning, uh, unless you want to sit in the grass. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, but we will celebrate outdoors together as one body, or one assembly, uh, and that morning we'll also... Uh, engage in some baptisms, and additionally, uh, we will be uh, appointing the elders uh, for the Redemption Hill Church plant. Uh, those elders will in turn appoint their first deacon, and uh, then together as uh, a church, we will be commissioning the Redemption Hill team uh, to go out, uh, which uh, I understand is going to be a difficult week for us, uh, and uh, I, uh, I keep telling myself that uh, it's not really the ending of one thing, it's the beginning of another thing, and that there are a lot of, an, an almost unending list of reasons, terrible reasons, for a church to divide, and there's really only one good reason for a church to divide, and by God's grace, we are dividing uh, intentionally for the progress of the gospel, so that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed uh, boldly in another place, and uh, appreciate that it is difficult, and in one sense, it is uh, the ending of uh, one thing, but it is absolutely the beginning of another thing, and it is also a cause for celebration. So, if uh, if you would, please plan to stay with us after the service that day. We'll uh, enjoy a meal together. In fact, if you, like me, are a very value-minded Midwesterner, that is kind of your jackpot week. Uh, is we'll have a meal together after church on the 20th. Uh, Country Bible will be having kind of a party in the park for all the children that participated in Backyard Bible Clubs this summer on the 26th in the Bennett Park. And all people, Hickman or uh, Bennett or Country Bible or Redemption Hill, all are welcome to that. Enjoy some time of fellowship together. Uh, and then on the 27th, Redemption Hill will be doing the same thing. However, they'll be doing it in the Hickman Park. And they have graciously invited everybody from Country Bible to join them and help them celebrate uh, the completion of the Backyard Bible Club. So if you're counting, your hungry freaking children could eat for three times free that week. Uh, but uh, on August 27th, the Redemption Hill team uh, will be at Faith Bible Church. They will not be with us that morning. Uh, Faith Bible is uh, very graciously and joyfully partnering with us to see Redemption Hill start. And the Redemption Hill team will be at Faith Bible that morning. 
And then beginning in September, they will start meeting at the Nebraska Community Playhouse uh, on Sunday mornings for one month. They'll kind of have practice services to work out uh, whatever kinks there are in like a new venue, new sound system, all that stuff. And then beginning in October, the first week in October, they'll have their first public service. So I wanted to inform you all chiefly so you could uh, be praying for that team as they uh, finish their last lap with us and start a new work there. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I understand. I appreciate that it is a, a difficult season as a church. And uh, along with uh, prayers for them, uh, I very much appreciate you making it a priority to take every opportunity in the weeks to come to encourage them to the work that the Lord has called them to do in Hickman. Uh, this morning... Uh, We are in Acts chapter 2, and I wanted to kind of set the context a little bit before we jump right into Acts chapter 2, because uh, while we are certainly more familiar with uh, the situation in Jerusalem probably than Theophilus was, there are some things happening in Acts chapter 2 probably that we're not altogether familiar with, and it maybe would be helpful uh, before we dive into the word that we understand exactly what is happening here. If you're a student of Old Testament history, you'll know that uh, the Jews had uh, left the land, uh, that some on their return to the land had stayed in the greater Babylon area, whilst others had migrated back to Jerusalem. And uh, at this point, Jews had kind of been dispersed all over uh, the, the, they would say the known world all over the Roman Empire but also uh, as the Persians fell to the Parthians all over what was then the Parthian Empire so think like Babylon, Iraq but also kind of Iran, Afghanistan and there were Jews kind of everywhere and many of them had retained their Jewish cultural identity uh, and would try to to the best of their ability come back to Jerusalem uh, there were three primary kind of like pilgrim festivals where Jews would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate something. We uh, would have seen, uh, and I hope that you're familiar with the Passover uh, and, and certainly Jesus's passion at the end of the book of Luke. Uh, and today we're going to be in Pentecost, uh, which Pentecost is 50. Uh, Pentecost is also called by Jews the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes the Feast of First Fruits. It gets kind of confusing when there's more than one name for a thing. But uh, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, is 50 days after Passover, Leviticus stipulates, but it also coincides with uh, the wheat harvest, the first fruits of the wheat harvest uh, for Judea. And the, the festival on Pentecost is really designed to uh, celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest and God's providing bounty for his people. And so uh, what Luke's going to kind of assume we know is that there are a lot 
of people in Jerusalem on this day, way more than typical. There's all the people that live in Jerusalem, and, and uh, certainly some of those people are people who are ethnically Jewish and know Aramaic, but they grew up outside of Judea. And so, like, the language that they think in isn't necessarily Aramaic or Hebrew. They think in another language, and they learned Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, But there are also a lot of people uh, that don't live in Jerusalem and are just there for the festival. So there's a huge crowd in Jerusalem, and uh, a lot of those people are Jewish by, like, religious conviction. They've become God-fearers or they've converted to Judaism, or they're Jewish ethnically and Jewish by religion, but they didn't grow up in Judea. And uh, that is the context for Pentecost. So I'd like to read the text with you and then pray. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and on my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have freely given your spirit. And God, we pray that as we sit under your word this morning, God, we would uh, rightly uh, see what a blessing it is that you have given your church in your spirit, Lord, how we in him can feel the very presence of Christ. And God, through his ministry, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would humble us, God, that we would uh, freely confess where we have uh, failed to walk in the power that you've so freely given, that we would eagerly seek to obey you as you've enabled us. And God, that uh, in our continued discipleship, uh, that you would mold us more and more towards the image of Jesus Christ. God, that you would complete the work that you've begun in us. God, that you would display the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through your people gathered here. God, we pray that you would do this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So, in one way, uh, you could divide chapter 2 pretty neatly between verses 1 through 13, which is kind of the coming of the Spirit, and then the crowd's reaction to the Spirit, and then 14 through 41 is Peter's sermon about the coming of the Spirit, and then the crowd's response to Peter's sermon, and then 42 to the end of the chapter is sort of what was happening in the early church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of course, uh, we're going to go this morning up to verse 21. While we're going to divide Peter's sermon in half, I think we'll see that uh, Peter's sermon kind of has a natural break at the end of Joel's prophecy, and then uh, Peter in his sermon will circle back to the point that he makes from Joel's prophecy in verse 21. And so, uh, you know, this morning I'd, I'd like to walk through the coming of the Holy Spirit, the crowd's response to the Holy Spirit, and kind of how Peter begins to respond or explain to the crowd what exactly is happening with the Spirit's coming. I don't think that uh, it's at all coincidental that uh, all of these people are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate how God so fruitfully blesses his people and on the day that they're there to celebrate it, God miraculously blesses them with a sort of fruitfulness that they can't possibly imagine. That uh, there aren't, I think, coincidences in the book of Acts, but this would be one of the things perhaps a person would be tempted to say is coincidental. Right? That, that they came to Jerusalem to celebrate the fruitfulness that God gives, having no idea what kind of fruitfulness Jesus Christ just bought for them with his own blood. And as Pentecost comes together, Luke indicates that the church is still all together in one place, presumably the same upper room. We'll see maybe that that upper room wasn't all that far away from the temple. Uh, 
But they're all together still, presumably all praying for the coming of the Spirit still. And as they're together in that room waiting for the promise that Jesus made, all of a sudden there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And uh, Luke's going to uh, try to describe to us exactly what is happening here. But even as we read Luke's description, I think we should note that he's not saying what happened, like somehow there was miraculously a wind uh, that didn't blow this house over but terrified everybody or something like that. But he's trying to capture the supernatural coming of God's Holy Spirit in earthly analogies. And he tells us first that it was a sound like a rushing wind, and then he's going to say it's tongues as of fire. But Luke is trying, in one sense, to capture for us what exactly it was like to be there. But in another sense, everything that Luke's going to tell us about this, and he really only talks about what happened in verses 1 through 4, 5 through 13, are how did the crowd respond to what happened, or how did the believers and the crowd respond to what happened. But everything that he's going to tell us is going to be the sort of thing that could be very easily objectively uh, qualified. Like, we could, you could ask a person, believer or unbeliever, hey, were you in Jerusalem on Pentecost? Did you hear, like, a crazy sound, like a, like a freight train? Uh, one of, I, I tell my boys uh, stories sometimes before they go to bed, and one of their current favorites is the Night of the Hallam Tornado. And, like, I, I thankfully wasn't in it, but I was close enough to it that I could definitely hear it. I was opening a window as it passed, and I was telling them it, it sounded like a freight train coming through, like an unbelievable sound. And that's, that's what's happening here. Like suddenly a, a sound that grabs everyone's attention, and by the time we get to the crowd, we'll see that it wasn't just a sound in the house, but it was a loud enough sound that it apparently captured the attention of everybody in the temple court. Like this very loud sound, and I'm sure that everybody in the house is absolutely bewildered slash terrified about the sound that they just heard. But so Luke doesn't really focus on what they were feeling or what they were thinking. For the most part, in 1 through 4, Luke's going to focus our attention on things that you could ask a person who is in Jerusalem about and they can say, whether they believe in Jesus or not, yes, that definitely happened. And we'll notice that through the book, that Luke is, we would say, kind of like a scientifically minded person, like an objective, he's like, he's an engineer, right? Like, he wants the cold hard facts, the things that can be proven, and that's largely what he's going to give us here. What actually happened? What could you ask a witness and they could verify? Uh, but even as the sound comes and fills the house, there is this other thing happening, and that is a tongue of fire appears to them and divides over, uh, over the 120 and it rests on each one of them. And I think 
you know, while wind, in a sense, it, the word could be translated spirit or wind, fire is also a word with a very long providence in Scripture. And often it means or represents holiness or God's judgment or God's graciousness. I think even more than the fire here, uh, probably key in on the idea of a tongue. Right? That God is gifting them by his spirit. And we'll see as we go through this text that he's very much gifting them for the proclamation of the gospel. Or in other words, to speak. Right? It's not uh, a mystery, I think, why exactly a tongue. Uh, this was for the church's proclamation of the gospel. And as this tongue settles over each one of them, they are each filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And Luke doesn't say at this point what they are speaking. He tells us later in the passage that they are talking about the mighty works of God and probably specifically the mighty work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But they are all, as they receive the Spirit, compelled to speak. And I think Luke, Luke gives us no indication, but if we back up for a second, uh, the thing that makes Pentecost so singular uh, as an event in Scripture is like this is an absolute shift in age. God's Spirit appears from the beginning of the Bible, right? He's hovering over the water, and we see the Spirit throughout the Old Testament. But if you look for a pattern in the Old Testament about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit almost always comes on a specific person or a small group of people for a specific task, right? God wants a judge to save the people of Israel, and the judge is empowered by the Spirit. God wants a king to lead the people of Israel, and so he empowers a king. But the Spirit before this moment had always come on individuals for something, and as that thing was accomplished, we don't really have any indication that they had any residual spirit empowerment, right? Like, and certainly that was not a blessing for everyone. What's happening here is remarkably different. And we'll see in the book of Acts that it isn't temporary, that absolutely everyone receives the Spirit of Christ, that everybody in the room receives the Spirit of Christ. And as we will see, the Spirit of Christ does not depart from them. That is, this is an absolute shift in the ages where Believers now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, are permanently indwelt by God's Spirit for God's purpose. And the first thing that this new generation of believers do is extol God's praise as they're empowered by the Spirit. And Luke as he describes the crowd's response, I think, uh, you know, he, he nicely says some things that, or the, the crowd nicely says some things. We'll try to make a little more explicit. But explaining to Theophilus that there were a lot of Jews dwelling in Jerusalem, but like I said, they're from every nation. They're ethnically Jewish, but they grew up all over the place, which if you are like me, uh, 
Like, if somebody asks me when we're going to Mexico, hey, Brad, do you speak Spanish? I never know how to answer. Because I'm like, well, kind of. Uh, I, I know some words, right? But, like, even, even, if I, even if I get going, like, get in the groove, Spanish is never the language that I think in, right? Like, somebody says something to me in Spanish, I hear what they said, I translate it in my head to English, formulate my response, and then try to formulate my response back into Spanish. And that's what I usually struggle with. But, like, English is my heart language. Like, when I'm thinking to myself, I'm not thinking to myself in Spanish or Greek or Hebrew. I always think to myself in English. Other languages, like, have a purpose, but the language of my heart is and will always be English. Uh, they, Theophilus certainly, because the Roman world is in a sense different than ours, uh, they would have been very familiar with what this was like. They had trade languages, right? Most people from the east probably at this point were speaking uh, Aramaic. Most people from the west were uh, speaking Greek, were in a transition where Latin is increasingly becoming a sort of trade language that all people speak. But that doesn't mean that that is their heart language. Their heart language is the dialect that they grew up with, right? Like it's, it's the language that they think in. And that might be kind of an unfamiliar experience to us because we all think in English and we basically only speak in English. But like they are very much in a world where like the language you speak in often is not the language that you think in. And the nature of the miracle here isn't uh, that they are speaking a language. It's that they're speaking and everybody despite the diversity of the crowd, is hearing what's said in the language that they think in. Like, the language they grew up with. And so, Luke wants us to understand that the, the crowd uh, is people who come from every nation. They all think in different languages, even though they all speak Aramaic. And when they hear the sound of the wind, the crowd gathers, right? They were probably migrating towards the temple. And assuming this house is somewhere near the temple complex, like the sound is enough to turn everybody's attention away from what they were doing and towards what on earth was that sound. And they're bewildered. They're confused about what's happening because as they turn their attention, they realize that everybody there, all, all 120 of those people are saying something, but I'm hearing it in the language that I think in. And I did not expect anybody in Jerusalem to know what are Elamite or uh, Bithian or whatever language they're like. How is this possible? Right? Like, what's going on here? And as, as the crowd starts to understand what's going on, they're absolutely amazed. They're astonished, Luke says, uh, because the crowd recognizes pretty quickly that the people speaking are Galileans, which is a very, very polite way to say uh, this is impossible, right? Uh, when I was younger, I uh, spent a summer on the East Coast and I can't believe how many strange questions I was asked. Do you guys have electricity? Do you, do you drive your tractor to school? Or, like, how do you get there? And, like, uh, they would probably think, like, people on the east or the west coast think about us. Like, uneducated, illiterate. Uh, there is no way these people have any culture. How on earth would anybody in Galilee know uh, Cyrene? That's not... 
possible. It's an uneducated backwater. How they knew that they were Galileans, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe it's the way that they're dressed. Uh, maybe some people recognize some of the eleven of, or some of the ten of Jesus, or eleven of Jesus's followers, and like. We don't know how they knew they're Galileans, but quickly they realize they're Galileans, and everybody is saying, this can't happen. Uh, how, how do they know the languages that I'm thinking in? And Luke goes on to, to make very explicit that these people are from everywhere, right? And he basically runs through all points of the compass. Parthians, Medes, Elamites would be like we think of Iran, Afghanistan-ish, uh, right? Mesopotamia is Iraq, like the, the Babylonians. Judea, he probably means greater Judea, so like Syria, most of what like we think of the eastern coast to the Mediterranean. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia would be like Turkey, uh, in the northern coast of Africa, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, people all the way from Rome, and they're not just a particular type of people from all over, but they're Jews, people who are ethnically Jewish, but also prophetites, people who have religiously converted to Judaism, even though they're not ethnically Jewish. There's people from islands in the Mediterranean, there's nomads from the desert, he's saying, like, Everybody is represented in this crowd. Uh, I, I think it's interesting in passing, at least it's interesting to me, that Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia are three of the places uh, in Peter introduces the letter of 1 Peter to. Like, he's, he's sending it to people from this area. Entirely speculation on my part, but it could be that, like, some of the people that start the church there are the people here in Jerusalem hearing his first sermon. And the same with Rome. We'll see in Acts chapter 28 when we get there that there's already a church in Rome, and presumably, uh, to me, uh, the church in Rome starts uh, here as these people go home carrying the gospel with them. But even more than uh, who is hearing, uh, what is being said is important for us to key in on. Uh, they are, in their heart language, hearing about the mighty works of God. And again, he doesn't say what exactly. I, I would assume uh, something about Jesus is being mentioned, but they are singing God's praises all in their heart language, and their response is amazement, like confusion and amazement. Like, how on earth is this possible, and why? is this happening, right? And even as some in the crowd seem genuinely to respond with confusion and amazement, others in the crowd automatically reject this out of hand. Like, they, they mock. They're drunk. And uh, I've heard a drunk person babble. I've never heard another, a drunk person babble in a language that they don't know. I kind of think that that's probably impossible, but I, I suppose... Uh, you know, whatever. I, I think probably, to me, verses 12 and 13 illustrate what we'll see through the book of Acts. Uh, that, uh, what happens is really only half of the equation about how somebody interprets what happens. More than half, even. It has everything to do with the person's own heart, right? Like, everybody's witnessing the same thing here, and some people, though they don't understand why it's happening, 
are seemingly just genuinely shocked and wondering what it means. And even as they're genuinely wondering what's happened, some other people have dismissed it out of hand. And I, like that is the hardening effect of sin. Like they they're ready to write this off as having some explanation, even if the explanation seems very implausible. Like there has to be a reason. Whatever. I'm I'm not thinking any more about what's happening here. And. I think, uh, you know, recognizing that this was happening, uh, the apostles decide that what is happening needs to be addressed. Like some explanation should be given. And as we're going to see in the book of Acts, especially in the early part of Acts, Peter almost always takes this role. And so Peter stands up with the 11 presumably behind him. They, they stand together. So basically they're saying like, Peter's speaking for all of us. And Peter begins his address by uh, politely uh, addressing them. And like a lot of what he says in verses 14 and 15 would be very typical for Jews addressing one another. Men of Judea, uh, you know, call them, you know, fellow Jews or brothers later, but very standard address here. Men of Judea and people who live in Jerusalem, uh, I'm going to explain to you what's happening, he's saying, so listen to me. Uh, these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it is the third hour of the day. All right, a little bit of a joke. He's, he's reminding them it's 9 a.m. Uh, yeah, we're all going to celebrate tonight after, like, we'll feast tonight, but it's, it's 9 a.m. Like, nobody's babbling drunk at this point in the day. Like, that's not what's happening here. And then he turns to explain what is happening. But as he explains what is happening, uh, he calls their attention to a specific text in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel. And Peter, I th this is the first time we're going to see something that we see time and time again in Acts. Right? That part of the responsibility of the believer is to understand and articulate the gospel in a Loctite way. But how it's articulated is going to vary through the book of Acts, depending on who's being spoken to, right? Are we talking to Samaritans? Are we talking to Gentiles? Are we talking to Jews? And when Peter is addressing Jews here, he doesn't just off the cuff explain what is happening, but he very specifically calls their attention to the fact that what is happening now was foretold by one of our prophets, right? That this is the fulfillment of prophecy. God told us that this was going to happen, right? He, he understands what he wants to say or where he wants to get as far as explaining what is happening, but he also has some understanding of his audience. He understands that they're probably going to be prone to reject whatever's happening unless he can clearly demonstrate that this is the power of Yahweh at work. And so he appeals to the fulfillment of prophecy to convince this crowd that what is happening is absolutely from God. And uh, talking to somebody after first hour, like, there are all kinds of texts in the Old Testament that my mind goes to where like, yeah, God basically did tell them very clearly that this was going to happen, right? Like, I think about 
my, my first text is Valley of the Dry Bones. Ezekiel and talks about uh, prophesying over the Valley of the Dry Bones. But Peter goes to Joel, and I think he goes to Joel for a specific reason. Right, uh, The way that Joel will conclude this prophecy. But as he opens the prophecy, uh, uh, Joel says, The last days it shall be. God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and that your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Right? So what Joel is predicting, what Peter is now saying, is there is no longer a priestly class. Right? Like Levites, uh, rabbis, like we don't need people to tell us what the word of God means, God is pouring out his spirit on every individual in this age, right? Young, doesn't matter. Old, doesn't matter. Male, doesn't matter. Female, doesn't matter. And and literally, male and female slaves, actually. Like, social class does not matter. That the spirit of God blesses absolutely everything everyone and anyone who meets the qualification for the Spirit of God, which he will say is belief. It doesn't matter who you are, all people who believe on Jesus Christ are given the Spirit of God and then speak. And this would have been, even as it's predicted in Joel, maybe a little bit difficult for them to grasp, right? Because there is always a mediator between God and men. Like, there are still Christians today that think there has to be a mediator, a human mediator between God and men. And Peter's announcing, no more. The Holy Spirit of God indwells all who believe that Christ is the mediator between God and men. And He goes on to indicate, like, we are in the last days. There will be other signs affirming that we are the last days, and this is all in a run-up to the return of Jesus Christ and the end of all things. And he goes on to say, very clearly, Joel does. Peter reiterates, It will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And this is where I wanted to end today, because I think at that point there are all kinds of things to glean from what exactly Peter is saying. Right? Uh, I think clearly he's driving the crowd's attention to Jesus Christ. Right? Like, What just happened is spectacular, but he's not drawing their attention to what happened. He's pushing their attention towards why it happened. And when Peter uh, refuses to engage in in the what and talks about the why, I think he is absolutely giving us something that we should see as somewhat paradigmatic today. That Uh, 
the purpose uh, is always to push attention towards Jesus Christ. Incidentally, uh, you know, if if you are you know wandering around YouTube and you see a miracle worker doing something miraculous, and you're like, "Holy cow! I've never seen anything like that in my church." Uh, I would say to you that just like they did, we should uh, ultimately consider that. Uh, the purpose of any miracle, including the miracle of all miracles at Pentecost, is to push people towards Jesus Christ. Anytime we think that we see or witness something miraculous and it draws our attention towards what happened, the miracle, or it draws our attention towards the miracle worker, uh, the person, I think we can be pretty confident that that's probably counterfeit. If it's actually from God as this was from God, then it will definitely always drive attention towards Jesus Christ. If anything other than Jesus Christ is the focus, we should be highly suspicious. God doesn't send miracles for miracle workers to enhance their own reputation. God sends a miracle to draw people's attention towards the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I'm confident that that's still how God works today. But maybe even more than that, I I would show you like everything to this point in the passage has been about the crowd, right? Like it happened to 120 people and the crowd responds to what 120 people are doing. Like everything's group, group, group through the passage. And then at verse 21, exactly as he'll do at the end of the text we look at next week, Peter drives attention to the individual. That it doesn't matter how a group of people responds. When we're talking about salvation, all that matters is how the individual responds. There is no such thing as Christian by association. It doesn't matter how many years your spouse drags you to church. That does not make you a Christian. It doesn't matter how pious your parents are. That does not make you a Christian. It does not matter how passionate and zealous your children are. That does not make you a Christian. That a Christian is a person, one of those everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ personally in order to be saved. That Peter tells the crowd very specifically, you personally have to respond to this message about Jesus Christ. And that is equally true today. That we each have to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what matters is how we respond personally. Not how the people around us respond. But I'd also like to point out, uh, you know, this is the inauguration of the global church, for sure. That's, that's what's happening here. This is the birth of the church. And God made it possible through Jesus Christ for his spirit to indwell his church so that the message of the gospel can reach the ends of the earth. And, you know, this, Pentecost, is the day that all that is finally happening. And uh, I would say still happening. Like, everything that started on that day is continuing until the commission that God gave the church is completed. 
Right? So we receive the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe in Jesus Christ. Right? Maybe we have not witnessed personally a tongue of fire divided over us uh, in, in the visual sense, but I think like, what's happening at Pentecost is, as I said, a shift in age. It shouldn't be peculiar to us that the first time it's happening, God sends some sign to verify, yeah, this is actually happening. We're now inheritors 2,000 years after the fact of the same blessing that people have experienced for millennia before us, and we still have the same task that these people had. Every believer is given the Spirit, and every believer has a role to play. There is no such thing as too young for the task. There is definitely no such thing as too old for the task. There isn't a too poor for the task. There isn't a too rich for the class. It isn't I'm female or I'm male. Like we all have a role to play in God's spirit in the completion of this task. And something I ended up thinking a lot about this week uh, Luke chapter 3, uh, Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him, and right away in Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches. Like Jesus has to speak. Uh, and here, uh, these, uh, the first group is baptized in the Spirit, and they are compelled to speak. Right? And if we, if we develop the train of thought that all who believe receive the Spirit of God, and at least thus far in Acts, all the people, or Luke and Acts, all the people that we've seen have, who have received the Spirit of God immediately feel compelled to speak. Like, what does it tell us if we say to ourselves, yes, I believe. Yes, all who believe receive the Spirit of God. But I'm going to dig my heels in and refuse to speak. Like, is, is that from God? Like, and I, I'm absolutely sure uh, that we would all probably come up with roughly the same number of reasons and even reasons themselves why I've never said anything to my neighbor, I've never said anything to my coworker, I never say anything to anybody, right? Like, I don't want people to think I'm different. But, if you have the Spirit of God, you are absolutely different. Like, and, and certainly, feeling different wasn't something that kept them from speaking on the day of Pentecost. Right? Like, we have the Spirit of God. We are absolutely different. And like, uh, I'm afraid. We have the Spirit of God. Like, what on earth could strike fear in our hearts if we are walking in obedience in the Spirit of God. We have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. At all. I think it, more often than not, we could probably say, like, I'm not sure if I get into a conversation like that that I'll know what to say. Like, you don't have to find the words. You have the Spirit of God. Like, our refusal to do what Jesus has commanded us to do and then empowered us to do is, if anything, a demonstration of a lack of faith. We have the Spirit of God. We are 
absolutely called to winsomely present the gospel to anyone who does not know Christ. And what they do or don't do with it is on them. It's the individual who responds or does not respond to Christ. Our call is to trust in the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, just as they did, and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. That the Spirit shook the world at Pentecost, that that Spirit indwells us as the people of God today, and absolutely, as a people, we should walk in faith, trusting that the Spirit of God will demonstrate His power in our weakness. And probably, uh, now more than ever, uh, this is something that I think dramatically affects our church body. I, you know, I, the failure is on two parts uh, between congregation and elders. You know, some of you maybe have said for years, I'm too young. I'm not ready yet. I'm not mature enough yet. I don't know my Bible well enough yet. I'm not ready. And because there were other people who were older and willing, we haven't pushed as hard as we should. And at the very same time, some of you have said, I've served my term, I'm done. Like, let a younger person do it. And because there wasn't a dramatic and glaring need, maybe we didn't push as hard as we should have. But by God's grace, we are stepping into a season where there is absolutely going to be need. Like, all hands on deck need. And I want to tell you, lovingly that you could absolutely expect from us more than, okay, well, let us know if you change your mind. And that is love from, from us, love for you. You have been equipped by the power of the Spirit to minister as God calls, and we hope and pray that we will all trust not only in the Lord's leading, but the Lord's empowering for the work of ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, for the grace upon grace that you've shown us, God, that you have uh, bought such blessing with the blood of Christ that you freely give all things to us in him. And God, we thank you especially for uh, the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the life of every believer. And so, God, we pray now that if there are any here who do not yet know Christ, that you would draw them to him, God, that you would cultivate a godly repentance and a faith in Christ, God, that we would all be blessed by the presence of your Spirit, and God, that we would work in the power of your Spirit for the advance of the gospel, God, not only in each other's lives, but in the lives of people who do not yet know you and maybe have never stepped foot in this building, God, that all people would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and for your glory and for the building of your church. And we pray that you would help us to complete our task, that Christ may no longer tarry, and that we will be united with you forever. God, we 
ask this in his name. Amen.